Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, David the First! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots, from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI. This week, another first. Indeed, David the first. Now, um, it's been a little bit of a while since we last recorded a uh, Scottish episode, mm. so uh, I think Ali, as much as everybody else, oh, probably yes, please. a little bit of backgroundy stuff mm-hmm. to refresh us on the world before David Always. becomes king. Our starting point, really, is his father, Malcolm III. Yes, I'm definitely going to need a refresh. Yes, so Malcolm killed Macbeth and Lullock of Murray, became king, ruled for 30-odd years um, in partnership with his wife, uh, Margaret of Wessex, who introduced lots of reforms to the court to make it a bit more European and cultured. And he also has a lot of clashes with William Rufus in England, because he keeps on invading the north of England. Okay. But then Malcolm was killed in uh, a raid at Annick in 1093. Margaret died soon afterwards, and their eldest son, Edward, also died from wounds. The Annus Horribilis. Exactly. Massive power vacuum, and the country really is split. So you have this kind of Gaelic reaction of people that didn't like Margaret and her oh, sons yeah. for being a bit too English. So they find, uh, they favour Malcolm's brother, Donald Bain, mm. whereas William Rufus takes in all of the sons of Malcolm III and he just keeps sending them off yeah. one after the other until yeah. eventually one of them manages one to stick. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it eventually works with Edgar and then Alexander, but we've got this problem for Scotland's identity and its independence, because we've got these Normanised kings who've been brought up in England, and they've kind of owed their kingship to the King of England. Mm. And David's story very much is that story. Is he Scottish? Is he Norman? Where do his allegiances really lie? Okay. But he's that same uh, lot of children that were holed up in Edinburgh Castle when the baddie Exactly. So he is the sixth son of Malcolm III and Margaret of Wessex. I bet he's glad he had spares. Well, exactly. I mean, he's had a lot of children, Malcolm III, and we've got to this point that the sixth son has been called up onto the bench. Um, He's born sometime between 1083, 1085. So he's probably in his sort of late 30s when he becomes king in 1124, Mm. which is a bit old. Um, Now, we do actually have a relatively contemporary image of uh, David I for the very first time. He appears on, I think, sort of a charter or a seal or something. There's an image of him. But nevertheless, let's have a look at how the Heritage Playing Card Limited artist has decided to depict him. Okay, so I'm going to do the reveal... And I've dropped it. Flat on this. It's okay. Face. I don't think it's going to last, Graham. Bad omen. <laughs> Ooh, let's have a look at this. He's well. He looks not unlike uh, God. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good start. In a, a, a sort of child's Bible or something. He's holding his fingers like Christ is depicted doing. He's got a crown uh, obviously long white hair long white beard very regal robes 
golden robe, not a spot of tartan, no leg at all, and he's rather seductively holding the left side open of his robe with the other hand. Nice. Now, let's have a little look here at the uh, front page of the book by Richard Oram, um, which has got this depiction. How close would you say this is to what the card has got of David? I'd say they copied it. Yeah. They brought it up to date. No, sword on the card, sorry, but the book has got a... They've gone for a more, yeah, they've gone for a more religious approach with the card. Yeah, so he's got sword and the orb yeah. uh, in the actual image, mm. which, again, very much a Norman. Probably, I think, the first David in Scotland, which is now a very common name. Right, yeah. But he's potentially named after King Solomon of Hungary's brother, uh, because his mother Margaret was exiled there as a child, and right. that's probably his godfather. Yeah, okay. Or, more likely, King David from the Bible. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, he doesn't have a... He's not epic when it comes to nicknames, but he is sometimes referred to as the saint. It's all coming together, Graham. But I think that's more for his piety rather than for his Roger Moore sort of uh, uh, tendencies. Or or just... To, they must have thought he looked like God as well, maybe. Yeah, exactly. He was very, very handy with his hands, could knock up his own throne or something. Exactly. Um, now, so his early years, we'd have very little evidence, really, for what he's actually doing, where he's doing it, and when he's doing it. Mm. As you said, the first thing we really know is that in 1093, he gets exiled from Edinburgh Castle by his uncle, Donald Bain. Yes. And then ends up at the court of William Rufus in England. Mm. But otherwise, he's pretty obscure. He's kind mm. of a periphery figure at Rufus's court. He's not really got any kind of presence on the record. However, things start to change, and all for the better for David. In 1100, mm -hmm. William Rufus is killed. Oh. I know. Um, but the upshot of this is that he's replaced by his younger brother, Henry I. Yeah. Despite the fact that Henry I did actually have an older brother. Yes. He, right. He nicked the throne. That's and right. because he nicked the throne, he wants to shore up his position in England. So he marries David's sister, Edith. But the benefit of this is that Edith and David are descended from the Anglo-Saxon royal line. Oh. So Henry I is uniting the Norman line and the Saxons, yeah. which means very legitimate. Okay, but we're to assume, though, that David knew Henry from his time in Rufus's court. Well, but it, he may not have known him well, because initially he wasn't particularly favoured. Yeah. However, when Henry marries Edith, they, yeah, David is now uh, the Queen's brother, and indeed... He is witnessing charters and being described as the Queen's brother. And this is a huge transformation for David now. So he enters now the royal household, mm. um, thank, probably thanks to her, because they seem to have got on quite well, and she was quite an influence in his early life. Um, as I said, he witnesses charters, and he's labelled the Queen's brother. Mm. This is, so this is before he has any power in Scotland. He's yes. just being... Yeah. yeah, before he's got any power in Scotland. And he then develops quite a close bond with Henry I and becomes something of a protégé. Right. So Henry's got kind of these new men, as they're called, that he promotes at court, gives them land, estates, involves them uh, in government. Mm. David is uh, one of the leading players right, okay. of this new court. So thanks to his sister, he's now actually yeah. a man of some substance. Cool. Things get even better in 1107 when his brother Edgar dies. Hey! Edgar um, promised to David, uh, bequeathed to him, uh, territory in southern Scotland. Yeah. Alexander, when he becomes king, doesn't really want to give him oh, yes, any I of this territory. This, yeah. um, but because David is mates with Henry I in England, and Henry mm. I is powerful and thinks that he's kind of got jurisdiction over England... Over Scotland. Uh, sorry, yeah. over Scotland. But then in 1113, David wants his Scottish land, Henry sends some troops north, and Alexander says, all oh, right then. Yeah, and gives fair it enough. Up. Okay. I mean, if I were Alexander, 
Mm. And you lost all your older brothers. And there was just the two of you now. Mm, it starts to look shaky, doesn't it? Because, mm. I, I mean... I want to stress to my own brother that there's only two of us, and that's not too at all shaky, but I get the feeling that they weren't terribly close seeing as he just went in with an army anyway. Well, and particularly because um, David doesn't just get that treaty he was bequeathed, he's given the title Princeps Cumbrensis, or Prince of the Cumbrians, mm. and um, his territory is effectively from Loch Lomond down through Glasgow to sort of the Solway... Firth, in effect, Isn't so that an north enormous of area. It is an enormous area. It's probably quite a bit more than Edgar had actually intended to give him. Yeah, because Henry wants to have an ally, basically, at the north at the border to make sure Scotland's not yeah. going to invade anymore. Mm. So David actually ends up with quite a bit more of Scotland than he was due. So, as you say, Alexander probably not not the biggest fan. A strange tactic, though, if I were Henry, just to secure the border instead of putting a buffer in there, just become an ally with Scotland don't have the fight in the first place can you trust those pesky Scots Malcolm III kept on making these treaties and then invading the moment their back was turned Um, and then his sister David's sister um, helps him even more by procuring a uh, rather profitable marriage Mm -hmm. so this is to a lady called uh, Maud of uh, Senley and she brought with her the honour of Huntingdon Right, so he's expanding further south. Exactly. So this gave him territory in uh, Northampton, Huntingdon, of course, and Bedford. So he's now become a rather rich, effectively English noble. Yeah. Um, And also his wife is the granddaughter of a chap called Seward, the Earl of Northumbria. Now, the earldom of Northumbria is currently vacant, so this also means that actually through his wife, David's now kind of got a claim to the northeast of England. Would would that uh, adjoin his land up in Scotland? Nearly. Um, well, yeah, it would do, yeah. And it's Carlisle also this huge swathe of territory that the Scots have always been rather interested in. God, crikey. So if he, yeah, right, okay, with you. So if he becomes king, which, spoiler alert, seems like he might <laughs> he do, do, he'll have all of that and bits in, down in Huntingdon. Except that uh, he's not pressing his claim to Northumbria during the reign of Henry I because, you know, he knows which side his bread mm, is buttered. Okay. However, in 1124, Alexander I, his brother in Scotland does die of very natural causes and so David becomes king however when he becomes king he's not entirely popular to English exactly to English he's um, he's barely been in Scotland Mm. because he was quite young when he came over so he really has been brought up as a Norman knight Um, once he became king he largely based himself in uh, Roxburgh which is sort of quite south it's quite near the English border so he's not really venturing very far north Mm. Um, and apparently he even tried to resist uh, the coronation ceremony at Schoon because it was far too secular for his uh, more Norman tastes. Whoa, hang on. It was more the fact that the ceremony at Schoon, because mm. it's very ancient, is basically that the nobles crown uh, the king. Oh, okay. So there's no anointing, there are no bishops putting the crown on his head like you'd expect mm. um, in the Anglo-Norman world. So David's like, oh, this is all a bit backward, all a little bit mm. pagan. Right. So the bishops apparently actually had to persuade him that it was okay well, to, no, to go through with it. He sounds like a pious one. I think he is quite a pious one. Well, got... He's God and nicknamed the saint, so... Uh... Oh, have we got an Alfred? Well. Now, um, he's unpopular, and he's also not even actually technically the most likely person to be king. No, not at all. Because um, there's a chap called William Fitz Duncan, who is the adult son of Duncan II, which was one of... Um, David's many older brothers. Yeah. 
Now, by primogeniture, he would actually be the next in line. So David's older than him, but nevertheless, Fitzduncan is an adult. Mm. And, okay, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, but he doesn't make any challenge at all, so presumably David must have bought him off at the oh. start. Maybe uh, yeah. recognised him as his heir or something like that. But David presumably is at this point really powerful, and, and he's it, rich. Yeah, it's just not worth yeah. taking on. Really. And of course, he's backed by Henry the mm. First. So actually, William Fitzduncan becomes quite a crucial ally to uh, to David. So that relationship keeping him quite close, well. clever. Exactly. The trouble comes from a man called Malcolm Mac Alexander. Right. Who is the illegitimate son of David's predecessor as king, Alexander the First. Illegitimate son. Illegitimate son. Okay. However, he seems to enjoy quite a lot of support um, further north in Scotland and among the more sort of native Gaelic um, members of the aristocracy. For being more Scottish. For being more yeah. Scottish, and they don't like David. So, as a result, David uh, faces a few rebellions. Okay, cool. Here we go. The good stuff. So, apparently in 1124, soon after or just before he was crowned, Alexander had a little bit of a go. Uh, Malcolm had a bit of a go, but didn't really get anywhere. Mm. However, in 1130, things get much more serious. Alexander allies himself with Angus of Murray. He sounds hard. Well, Angus of Murray is the grandson of Lullock. Oh. We mentioned at the start. The simple. Was Lullock the simple, yes. The drumstick man. Drumstick man, yes. Mm. But nevertheless, formerly King of Scotland. Yeah. So Angus of Murray is descended from a, is a legitimate descendant of a Scottish king, but presumably genetically hopeless. <laughs> um, and he's also from this very rebellious territory of mm. Murray, which is this kind of northeast Scotland and the bit that charts out. Um, and this is much more serious. So David actually was in England at the time, which Obviously. he often was. <laughs> yeah. So while he was away, um, Angus and Alexander lead an army into sort of Scotland proper. And uh, they're invading. Right. It's pretty serious. Okay. Thankfully, however, David's constable, mm. a man called Edward, leads the resistance, and at the Battle of Stracathro, Angus is killed. So he wasn't even there. Technically, he wasn't actually there. That's not going to help his popularity, is it? And unfortunately, Malcolm escapes. So then from 1130 to 1134, it's not very well detailed, but we seem to have this sort of ongoing conflict kind of across Scotland, west, east and north, where David's really struggling to come to terms with this guy. He's <laughs> just running around. Malk on the run. <laughs> However, uh, David obviously eventually gets fed up with it, has a word with uh, big mate Henry I. <laughs> Henry sends some troops and some ships tells all the kind of people around the rebellious areas that they maybe might want to stop helping him out. And yeah. at 1134, Malcolm is captured and imprisoned at Roxburgh Castle. Oh, he phoned up the big brother. That's rubbish. Well, technically, he phones up big brother-in-law and uh, gets him to sort it out. On the other hand, he has now defeated all of his rivals. Mm. He is now able to occupy Murray. So he builds uh, royal castles, puts his supporters in there. William Fitzduncan may have become... Uh, an earl in that territory and he does start to get better accommodation now with the Gaelic lords presumably now that there isn't an alternative yeah Um, so on the one hand Henry's done it a lot of it for him on the other hand David's probably now more secure in Scotland than Mm. his predecessors so things looking a bit better for David Mm. however they're not looking so good for Henry the first Oh, no. In 1120, there was the White Ship Disaster. Oh, creeping ivy. So this is where Henry I was prodigious in his output when it came to children. Yeah. But unfortunately, only two of them were actually via his wife. So, and, the one, and in the White Ship Disaster, his only legitimate son died. 
and he didn't produce another heir when he remarried, so he's only got his daughter, Matilda. She left. is awesome, though. And he decides that he is going to name her as his successor. Uh, Henry does. Henry yeah, yeah, is yeah, going to yeah, name yeah. his daughter Matilda as his successor. Mm. But this is a pretty big deal. We've never had uh, a queen no. regnant in England before. Um, and Henry needs to get all of his nobles and his bishops to swear an oath to recognise the succession, say that they will uphold it. And he decides that he needs some help, and he turns to David. Right. Because David is one of the leading men at the English court, despite being yeah. the king of Scots. And he could help bolster that claim. And he can help mm. bolster that claim. Um, so, in return for David supporting Matilda's claim, uh, Henry agrees to help David out again in a dispute that David's having with the Archbishop of York, a man called Turston. This isn't the same thing as last time, is, is it? It's the same thing. So, this is where the, um, York considers itself to have sovereignty over the Scottish Church. Yeah. So, Alexander, his predecessor, and now David, can't get their bishops consecrated in Glasgow or in St Andrews. So, Henry uh, agrees, after a bit of debating, to defer the issue from not, here. Oh, not, not to say this is the answer, just to defer it a bit. Not to say this is the answer, but in effect, he's giving David a bit of free reign. So, the next year, David is able to get the Archbishop of uh, St Andrews put in place, and he doesn't have to profess his obedience to York. Um, and so, in 1127, Henry holds his great council, all of the bishops, all of the great nobles of the country are there, the bishops all swear their allegiance, and then David is the first layman, either the first of the nobles, to make the oath. So he's right up there. He's right up there, yeah. he's number one secular man. Mm. And then in 1135, Henry I dies. Surfeit of the old fishy-wishies. However... He had fallen out with his daughter Matilda in his final years, and he didn't boost her standing at court, and indeed she wasn't actually in England no, with him when yeah. he died. Consequently, Matilda's cousin Stephen nicks the throne instead. Now, how are you feeling about David I at the moment? Well, in terms of what he's doing, his status, his identity, his independence, all this sort of stuff. I'm a bit worried. We haven't had much battliness. We've had a lot of him sort of basically on his on his jollies down in london yeah. <laughs> and the weather's nicer uh, and he can hang out with his powerful friends and he seems a bit saintly mm. i'm a bit worried that he's going to be all he's going to get all alfred on me well and not and enough athelstan so stephen took the throne in december 1135 mm. within a month so but into 1136 david invades northern england good um now people have debated why he does this well bit of fun well exactly well on the if we're going to go for the pious david yeah then it's his feudal obligation he swore an oath to henry the first outrageously stephen has gone against it yeah matilda is his niece of yes course. yeah yeah on the other hand he just wants a whole lot of territory and this is a great opportunity because the english are in a little bit of a pickle and they really are this is an awful time for them aren't they Probably the northern towns and castles wouldn't have ex expected it, because David's effectively been an English earl. Yeah. They don't really see him as a bit of a he threat. Probably, he probably passed the castles on his way up to invade <laughs> back down, yeah. instead of, hello, hello, see you in a minute. So it's sort of like Germany and Norway, you just sort of wake up one morning and there are lots of men in kilts and swords yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, in this uh, invasion, he occupies the castles of Annick, mm. Norham, Newcastle, oh. Wark, and Carlisle. All in one go. All in one go. He just sweeps through the northeast over to the northwest of England. Jolly good going. Whoosh. 
Um, now, he was then going to march on Durham, which has been long been a favourite of Scottish mm, kings yeah. to try and invade. But at this point, Stephen does take the initiative. He arrives with an army, but they don't fight. Instead, they make peace. Yeah. And uh, the terms of this are that David gets to retain Carlisle, and his son, Prince Henry, who is an adult and so part of this army as well, he uh, does homage to Stephen for the honour of Huntington, so he gets those English estates back. Oh, no. So he's effectively swapped sides there, hasn't he? Well, you know, what's he really after, Matilda or a bit of land? Oh, I really hoped he was Team Matilda, and he's going to... I hope he um, goes back on this and... So initially, Henry actually goes to Stephen's court... Stephen mm. tries to butter him up and treat him well, but not everybody else likes it. Not as a prisoner? Not as a prisoner, no, just okay. as an honoured an honored guest. Except that not everybody at Stephen's court likes paying all this uh, attention to the son of the King of Scots. Indeed, the Archbishop of Canterbury gets angry and accuses him of treason. So, uh, for no, no particular reason. David doesn't like this, recalls Henry, and 1138, he invades again. Because his son was badly treated? Yeah, because his son got wow. insulted. Um, so it's a major invasion this time, very notorious, as we'll see later, for alleged uh, brutality and plundering on David's part. Um, William Fitzduncan wins a battle at Clitheroe in Lancashire mm. against the English, and then he joins David and Prince Henry at North Allerton, which is sort of, Yorkshire, yeah, yeah. North Yorkshire. A very large Scottish army takes on the Yorkshire army in battle, but they're also rather indisciplined compared to the English, and they suffer a pretty heavy defeat oh dear. in the Battle of the Standard. Oh dear. However, it's actually not really that big a deal for David, other than all the thousands of Scottish people that were killed. <laughs> Stephen is down south in England, mm-hmm. very, very busy with everybody fighting against him in the anarchy, the Civil War. Yeah. So he can't come north and take advantage of it. Similarly, the Northern Army has really, you know, it's done pretty well to see them off, but it definitely can't go pushing forwards. Okay. Yeah. So David just goes back to his residence at Carlisle, at the castle, continues to besiege uh, another castle that's under English control, and then Stephen's wife comes to negotiate with David at Durham, where we have the Second Treaty of Durham. Now, this time, David keeps Carlisle, keeps effectively English Cumbria, Right. So, like the Lake mm. District. Henry is restored to the honour of Huntingdon, and then he does extra homage and is recognised as the Earl of Northumbria. So he does get that land? Yes. Wow. Um, so it, Stephen is just giving anything away Stephen here. keeps Bamber uh, and Newcastle, and also takes some prisoners. But he is losing ground. For that defeat... Yeah. He's still lost ground. So David has suffered a huge defeat, and in return, and his the price of that massive defeat is he gets much more land. <laughs> wow. Okay. Because Stephen's stuff. got so much bother going on in England. Yeah. He really just wants to, David to just stop. But uh, so he, he should just do it again. It. Well, I mean, it, it seems actually to go pretty well. So um, Henry, Prince Henry, goes back, serves with Stephen, helps actually fights with him in the West Country. Mm. And it did look like that could have been a permanent peace. But in 1141, Stephen is captured at Lincoln by the Empress Matilda. Yeah. And it looks for all the world like Empress Matilda is going to become the Queen. Yeah. Now, this is a bit problematic for David, because he didn't really know how she was going to react, given that he just made a peace treaty with her enemy. Mm. Will she honour it? Will she be hostile to him? What's going to happen? But he did sort of do a lot of fighting. He did, but he also didn't really negotiate very hard mm. for her cause. Yeah. So, uh, David takes the initiative, comes all the way back down south, 
um, to be with Matilda, to be there for her coronation, as he expects, and so to be part of her inner circle and one of her trusted advisors. Niece! Uncle David! <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately for the Empress Matilda, she's rather unpopular in London and is then routed uh, rather humiliatingly from Winchester and never actually gets crowned. Mm. So David is with her, actually, being chased out <laughs> right. uh, of the country. But he does get away, and he does get back to Scotland. Um, but Stephen, by this point, has escaped again. Well, he doesn't escape, but uh, Matilda's half-brother and one of her key uh, allies, Robert of Gloucester, is captured in this defeat, so yeah. they have a prisoner exchange. Mm. So Stephen gets let out. Stephen's king again. So David goes back to Scotland, um, but it's not a complete failure. On his way back, he takes control of Newcastle and Bamber, which yeah. had been the bit Stephen had kept in the northeast. But David just oh right, yeah, of course they were, yeah, yeah. Yoinks them back. He extends his influence into Lancashire, mm. gains control of Alston, which has a mint, i.e., minting coins. So David is now, for the first time in Scottish history, minting coins. They weren't before. Scotland didn't have coinage before. What do they do? Uh, yeah, just... Wheat? Wheat? wheat. <laughs> Salt. Pig for wheat. I mean, that. I guess there would have been coins, but they would have been importers. Just, right. It's the first time we actually have Scottish coinage. Um, he doesn't really have too much more involvement in the anarchy. Um, and indeed, he introduces something of a, what's been called a David- Davidian revolution. Which effectively means huge changes in Scotland with sort of Norman-style reforms in government, in state, uh, and also with the church. So we've got a lot of uh, monastic patronage, centralised government spreading in a much more organised and regulated fashion than mm. been in Scotland before. So David's, David's really in control of things. So while it's all kind of chaos down south in Scotland, and indeed Northumbria and the Lake District and Lancashire... David's all right. And that's because he's got this safe distance now from any invasion. He's he's been given time to consolidate. Exactly. And he's not going to be invaded by Stephen or Matilda because they're so busy fighting themselves, fighting each other. Mm. And indeed, he's able to actually expand a bit in Scotland. So, um, as we said, in Murray, he's been colonising that and Mm. increasing his influence. He also increases his dominance in the southwest, so sort of Galloway. Um, And then he pushes even further north um, and he starts looking at Orkney. And Kate Ness. Which are uh, Norwegian at this yeah, point? Yeah, Norse. Um, so he installs um, a little little man called Harold Maddison, little in the sense that he's a child. Okay. Who is the son of a Scottish earl. Mm. So in effect, he puts his own man in Orkney, but mm. a child. So he's now really the dominant player. That also brings Kate Ness on the very north of the mainland into David's realms of control mm. as well we've got the west which now recognizes him as mm. the he is alfred isn't he he's he's, he's or looking, is he athelstan i suppose well he's a bit of both perhaps mm. however in 1149 england does once more raise its head mm. it's a bit too tempting for him because stephen um had his nephew made archbishop of york but the pope decided that this chap wasn't really up to the job and had him deposed why uh various reasons that we're not really interested okay. in so instead, a chap called Murdoch is the sort of elective man. But mm. Stephen's a bit grumpy and isn't going to allow him to become the Archbishop of Fair enough. He's got used to power now, hasn't he? Well, exactly. So Murdoch, who wants to be Archbishop, is really, you know, he wants a bit of help. He needs mm. somebody that can get him into York and sort it out for him. Yeah. Who do you turn to? You turn to David, who's got kind of half of Britain now yeah, yeah. in his territory. So 1149, Murdoch goes to David at Carlisle. And they become firm friends, and David 
intimates that he could definitely do a lot better if we stuck with him <laughs> rather than bothering with that silly Stephen man. The Empress Matilda at this point has kind of given up a little bit in terms of her own cause. So instead, her young son, her 16-year-old son, Henry of Anjou, future Henry II, is now the one that's doing everything. Mm. So he also goes to David at Carlisle. Uh, So David, Murdoch, the prospective Archbishop, and Henry march on York. Right. So we've got a priest in there as well. Exactly. I mean, so the idea is for David, he conquers York, he's now really got the north, puts Murdoch in as the Archbishop of York, and then it doesn't actually matter whether or not York's got sovereignty over the Scottish Church if York is effectively part of Scotland. This has got to be the biggest extent of Scotland ever, isn't it? Right down that far? Except, of course, that he doesn't actually manage Ah. to take York. Stephen garrisons the city in time, David isn't able to uh, conquer it, and he's forced to withdraw. But still, this has to be the largest area (laughs) Scotland has ever covered. However, David's final years, his luck runs out a little bit. Right. Um, He'd been trying to get his bishop people installed, his own candidates in Durham and also in York, but Durham ends up appointing a Stephen man. Murdoch reconciles with Stephen in Uh, York, so he hasn't quite managed to pull off. Tide is turning. Durham and York. Also in Orkney in 1151, King Eystein, the second of Norway, uh, launched a surprise attack, captured the teenage now Harold Maddison, and took control of Orkney. So Orkney is now kind of back Mm. under Norwegian influence. Um, He also raided Aberdeen and Hartlepool on his way home. (laughs) That's just stopping in, isn't it? Standard Viking. More serious, much more serious, though, in 1152, David's son, Henry, dies. Ooh, he was really set up, though, He was he? very well set up. He was very well respected. He was a, a successful soldier. He'd got experience of ruling territory, of mm. course, with Northumbria mm. and Huntingdon. Um, he may have been unhealthy in the 1140s, perhaps, but it does seem to be a bit of a surprise. But I thought we'd got all this sorted out. Like The, the Scots, their succession, mm. however crazy their, um, their actual system is, they all die. <laughs> yes. It's like a perpetual 2016 in Scotland. And this, for David, is a problem, because now... I mean, this was this is his only son. Oh, right. Now, he does have grandchildren, oh, so dear. thankfully Henry has sons as well. Mm. Um, so David's forced into this really sort of epic PR campaign to ensure that Malcolm, aged 11, will be recognised as king in Scotland, and that William, aged 9, will be recognised in Northumbria. It's not going to go well. I mean, they they couldn't get Matilda involved, you know. (laughs) So, I mean, he's he's done about as much as he could do, realistically, David, in the circumstances. But fate's dealt him a bit of a cruel blow. Yeah. And then David himself, in 1153, dies of natural causes at Carlisle Castle, aged about 70. Well, that's a good run. Mm. And they've got, so they've got the longevity going there. And they've got the not getting killed bit. Yes. <laughs> Just need to do the final thing and get their succession right. Anyway, that is the life and reign of David I. Let's see how he fares when we mm. review him. Battleliness. Okay, so we've got quite a lot uh, to talk about Certainly here in Battleliness. First of all, we've got the, the wars of succession that he had right at the start of the reign. Yeah. So he faced that challenge from Malcolm MacAlexander. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also that alliance with Angus of Murray, which could have been quite serious. Murray's been the undoing of a number of oh, yeah. Scottish kings uh, over the years. 
It didn't start well. It didn't I was surprised. start well, but it could, you know, and it could very easily have come mm. completely unstuck. If you remember Duncan the Second when he sent his foreign troops home. And oh yeah. A few weeks later, <laughs> this could have been a very very short reign. Um, Eleven thirty was much more serious because we have the alliance with. Um, Angus of Murray, as we said. Um, and then 1130 to 34, again, protracted conflict, but ultimately he does see off the threat and he is then secure. Mm. So he's got that done. He then sets about getting a much uh, tighter hold over Scotland. So in Murray, uh, he makes William Fitz Duncan his, uh, his nephew. Um, Earl of Murray, and he may have married him to a uh, Moravian oh, princess oh right. as well. I thought no, he made a bit of scandal then. <laughs> Um, so this is all just to make sure he's got one of his men, his most senior and loyal men, is now effectively in Murray, yeah. in Murray in control. Mm. He establishes royal castles at Elgin, Forres, and Inverness, and it's kind of a similar tactic that Edward I used in Wales. You know, you build the castles, <laughs> yeah, get the economic thing going, you get the governance going. You just—it's a very effective tactic. I'm liking it more and more. <laughs> but Western Scotland as well, he tries to do uh, a little bit of work. Um, this is largely dominated by the Isles, the Irish, and the Earls of Orkney. Hmm. So the Norse, basically, the Vikings. Now, there's no full-on conquest in the West, but David does quite a lot of effort to assert himself as overlord of this territory and get hmm. them to recognise that he is the dominant force now. So sure enough, in 1138, in the Battle of the Standard, men of Argyll were listed as fighting with David. And Argyle is the in part the that he... Yeah, yeah, the southwest of Scotland. Right. So that indicates that he's got a certain level of dominance there yeah. as well, if he can now call on them to fight with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, and as you said, in Orkney and Caithness, he did that bit, getting, uh, getting the Earl in. And, um, <laughs> get that- an Earl in. <laughs> I've got a problem with me Orkneys. You want to get an Earl in, mate? <laughs> now, although it does effectively end up back in North control by 1151, he gets a good decade or so where he's really the dominant player and this indicates now the fact that he's really looking that far north Mm. that you know scottish power and scottish influence Mm. scottish territory is closer and closer to what we actually think of today as scotland yeah well so much recently has been them focusing on that southern border the fact that he can even turn round. yeah exactly But, of course, the biggie here is England Mm. and uh, what some have termed the Scotto-Northumbrian realm. Now, it's it's an incredible swathe of northern England that David just takes control of. So, as you said, we've got Cumbria, we've got the Earldom of Northumbria. His main residence is actually now at Carlisle. That's where he's living most of the time. Now, I've got... uh, There's a lovely little map uh, here for you to have a look at on the bookmarked one. So, if you just want to... Open on that side. Just give Ooh. a little description of that which is David's. Okay. It really. I mean, he's nearly. He's nearly down to the Wirral. It's uh Yeah. Wow. So we've got a lot of Lancashire. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Northumberland. All of Northumberland. Um. As as his tradition on Rex Factor, he's got <laughs> most of the left of the north of England. Yes. Uh, and then obviously all, all of the uh, Scottish bit. The River Humber there, mm. just south of York, that would make a really natural boundary. Yeah. So is that where he's pushing? If he takes York, then he has actually... He can do a whole new line across can, England. Exactly. He can completely redraw wow. the map. So he's sort of down to, I think, Skipton, or is it? Sort of oh, sorry. Yeah, we've got Skipton, <clears throat> Tolketh, never heard of that. <laughs> uh, Which are actually pretty much level with York. Yeah, they are. I mean, Tolketh is further south. Mm. Wow. 
really, I mean, it's jolly impressive stuff. Now, I mean, if we're to compare that to previous Scottish monarchs, you know, sometimes we've had, you know, oh, they won a little battle against mm. their brother or their nephew yeah. or whoever, or, oh, Constantine the Second. you know, he, he did really well to lose quite a close battle against Athelstan and only yeah. suffered a bit of in, an invasion. Yeah, we were trying to find a ten yeah. to, pitch it, to p- pitch our scores against. This is David massive. Down this is Henry II-esque in mm. Scottish terms. Um, the t- Treaties of Durham, where Stephen effectively gives up quite a lot of this territory, are also quite significant in terms of the independence that David's got now. Because previously the problem was that the Scottish kings were doing homage to the English kings. Mm. Whereas now... Not only is Scotland not even on the table in terms of the negotiations as a territory, yeah, but the homage being done is for what was technically English land. And even better than that, David isn't the one doing the homage. He's getting his son, Henry, to do it for him. Oh, right, so yeah. the King of Scots is no longer yeah. doing homage to I the I thought you were about to say the King of England was doing homage, but it's not gone that far, but they're now on level playing fields if they can get a neutral person really. Well, and this is the other thing, which is really very cool. 1149, as I said earlier, the future Henry II came to David's court at Carlisle, wanting a bit of support, mm. trying to become king. So David knights Henry II... Mm. in a very lavish ceremony, and extracts from Henry an oath that if Henry becomes king, he will recognise Cumbria and Northumbria as Scottish territory. Henry II makes a pledge to David, having been knighted by David, that he will recognise Northumbria and Cumbria as Scottish territory. I mean, obviously Henry II at this point, he was pretty powerful in his own right, but he wasn't to Henry II. Or, in, or literally wasn't Literally Henry wasn't Henry II. <laughs> but, um... Uh, Still, knowing what comes next, mm. that's pretty, so pretty that, something. That's at the end of David's reign. That's his standing and status. I can't imagine Henry, for one second, would have put up with that. But no. we'll see. It's very, very good. Um, of course, however, ah. there are going to be some buts. Yeah. First of all, and what I think where you probably would have expected the episode to have been going when we were starting off... Yeah. Henry I is basically doing everything for him for the first 10 years. Mm. So, 1113, um, when he got that land from Alexander, that was thanks to Henry I. In 1130, that rebellion in Murray, David wasn't actually there. It was his English constable that defeated. He was even English. Wow, I didn't realise that. And 1134, David was struggling to deal with Malcolm. Henry sent in troops, he sent in ships, sorted stuff out. And that's how it was all done. Mm. So, do we give David a lot of credit for defeating his rivals? It was really all kind of Henry. Initially, yeah, but I mean, and I was the one who said, oh, he's called on Big Brother. Mm. But actually, he did what was necessary. It was diplomacy. Mm. And he, he, he secured it so that in the future he could do this incredible stuff. So we've had all these unlucky Scottish kings beforehand. Yeah. Finally, we've got one for whom the dice is really rolling in his favour. Use it. Yeah, that's true. Now, some have suggested that this Scotto-Northumbrian realm is a bit illusory. And actually, we can't give him so much credit. He does have certain failures. As you said, he does march on Durham a couple of times and doesn't manage to take it. Tried to install his chancellor as the bishop, but wasn't able to do it. He also marched on York, but again, Stephen keeps intervening mm. and stopping him just before he really gets mm. a huge, uh, huge victory. And 
is it arguable? In fact, you were starting to say it earlier. He's got that oath from Henry II. He's got this huge realm. But realistically, when England is done with its civil war, and indeed when Henry II comes to the throne, realistically, how long is it actually going to last? Yeah, an ascendant England with someone powerful like Henry. Mm. However, to be fair, David was a strong and capable king. English authority really wasn't that well established in the north of England at this time, mm. even now. And he's just unlucky at this point. Henry the F- um, Prince Henry was a very capable yeah. soldier and ruler. If he'd become king, how quickly would Henry II have been able to take all that back? He'd got a lot of other stuff to do in his massive yeah. launch of an empire. Maybe wouldn't yeah. have been such a foregone conclusion. And marrying Eleanor Aquitaine, suddenly having all that mm. more power. I think because we've got to judge it with in David's lifetime, yeah. he did everything he could. There's no way he knew that Henry would be as formidable as he was yeah he just did everything he could i think you're right mm. what more could he have done mm. no no other time in rex factor series two <laughs> have we talked about them uh, consolidating that much land or expanding that far south yeah yeah it's very strong <laughs> perhaps the biggest thing against him is the battle of the standard in 1138 okay this Let's is the it. one actual real big battle of the period and he loses quite heavily. Mm. Um, so the campaign, he made quite a few gains, but actually quite slow progress because of all the plundering, which we'll come to later. The army was actually quite unpopular, so he met quite a lot of oh uh, resistance. And he was intent on capturing York. Um, a peace delegation initially tried to persuade him to come to terms, but David was intent on fighting, so he obviously really you know, mm. he thought this was the moment. And you could tell why. It was possibly the largest Scottish army taken into England. 16,000 Scots against about 10,000 English. Wow. Um, and the English didn't have Stephen because he was down south mm. sorting stuff, so the English king isn't there. Now, apparently, David's army had the Galwegians in the front, so the men of Galloway, then Prince Henry with the knights and the archers, men of Lothian, and then David. Is that in order of uh, expendability? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, now, there was a bit of a dispute before the battle because apparently the Galwegians insisted that they were going to attack first. And uh, according to Aylred, the Galwegians were perhaps a little bit of a relic of a bygone age in Scottish military history. Oh dear. Lightly armoured and wearing only the shortest of kilts, or as he said, leaving their buttocks half naked. That short? That's a belt! So they're the ones. Get that image out of my head of uh, 16,000 men with their ghoulies dangling down. <laughs> dear. Now, um, Archbishop of York, Turston, the one that David's had all this conflict with over the church. Yeah. He's obviously Archbishop of York, so he's there on the scene, one of the key figures yeah. leading the resistance. And he turns this into something of a holy war, compares the Scots to barbarians, prepares the soldiers with fasts, with prayer. That's and no good. Fasts? Yeah. Oh. That's just what you want before a big battle. Yeah. No food. Mm. And uh, he also sets up a host of holy banners and relics, which he carts around on a wagon around the English army to give them inspiration because the saints are with them. He sounds like Albert Steptoe, like in a rag and bone man or something. I've got some tat in the back. Have a look at this. Put that Mars bar down. So the brave Galwegians lead the attack, uh, but against a well-disciplined, heavily, heavily armoured Norman army, doesn't go terribly well. No. They're forced into a rout. Uh, Prince Henry almost managed to recover it with a charge, but ultimately they had to do... Uh, to make fast with a retreat very heavy defeat something like maybe 10,000 casualties for David in about a three and a half hour battle 
But as we said, didn't actually, matter. didn't matter. Yeah. Didn't lose any territory. You actually gained territory. Yeah. Didn't take your... But it was enough to show up in that yeah. the threat <laughs> of doing it again when Stephen was exhausted, that was probably as much as he could afford to do. Mm. Yeah, fine, maybe he knew that. I mean, it's almost, we've made, I've made a few references to the board game risk, but it's almost like he'd got a full cohort of troops mm. taking on a smaller one. Yeah. He lost that battle, but he's got plenty... In backup and yeah. backup, so it didn't actually matter. Yeah. Anyway, so where's where's it all falling out for him at the end? Um, underneath his kilt, by the sound of things. <laughs> yes. But, but score wise, <laughs> um, uh, it's going to be the chunkiest one yet. So I will deduct a point mm. for uh, the losing the battle, but only a point. Because he still won the war. Yeah. I think all that sweeping round, grabbing all those castles, mm. wonderful stuff. <laughs> Great big tracts of land, but it's big. It's really big amount of territory he's grabbed. Mm. In the in in equivalent terms, because Scotland is a smaller nation with smaller people and smaller resources, yeah. it feels like that is the equivalent of a big. You know, like we said, it's the left of the north of England. It yeah. feels like the equivalent of the left of France. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking eight as well. I think losing the battle, even though it didn't really matter, because it, it goes a little bit with the fact that, like we said, for the early stuff with the succession wars, it's not him mm. fighting a great battle. And also, I suppose, you know, how much hardcore fighting does he do in capturing all these places? And mm. how much is it just taking advantage of a lack yeah. of an English army? Yeah. But nevertheless, but nevertheless yeah. he does it. I mean, that's what you want, really. Yeah. My other point, by the way, I should have said, was, yeah. was taken away for that uh, not even being present yes. and having his <laughs> English line. So, um, yeah, eight. I'm happy with that. But that's a very good score. It's the best score we've had so yeah. far. It's a 16 for Battleiness. Kapow! Scandal! So, how's he going to do for Scandal? We've been talking about how he's the saint, how he's very pious. Surely there's going to be nothing. Oh, uh, yeah, that's my favourite bit. He's a bit of a slippery character, mm. is old Davy. Um, so we had in 1113 when he connives with Henry I against his own brother to take some of Scottish land yes. to have for himself. Um, and there is a bit of Gaelic resentment about this among the Scots. There was a contemporary poem which read, It's bad what Malcolm's son has done, dividing us from Alexander. He causes, like each king's son before, the plunder of stable Alpha. Oh, so they're accusing him of destabilising mm, all of Scotland. Country. He did the opposite, though, in the end. Ultimately. Mm. Mm. And he does flip-flop, rather, during the anarchy. So he makes that very quick attack on Stephen, which is a bit too soon to have actually coordinated it with yeah. his Matilda. Um, he then makes two peace treaties where he just takes <laughs> lots of land and makes absolutely no reference whatsoever to Matilda's claim. Yeah. And then when she captures Stephen in 1141, he's straight down <laughs> to yeah, England. Says, Look what I've been doing. Busy, mates. And yeah. then he hops it back to Scotland. Um, you know, can you trust him? I don't know. I think that is making the most of the situation. Hmm. And it was... Bearing in mind he's representing Scotland, yeah, if you'd be on a personal level, yes. that is pretty rough. But he's doing the best for the country, and he, it really did work out well. Hmm. I think that's fine. The most notorious thing from David's reign is his 1138 campaign, which was, according to the English chroniclers, pretty, pretty bad. Oh, yeah. This is uh, Henry of Huntingdon, um, and this is, this is quite graphic if you're of a sensitive disposition. 
The king of Scots acted execrably, for they cleft open pregnant women and took out the unborn babe. They tossed children upon spear points and beheaded priests upon the altars. They cut off the heads of crucifixes and placed them upon the trunks of the slain and placed again the heads of the dead upon the crucifixes. Thus, wherever the Scots arrived, all was full of horror and full of savagery. That is very grim. Mm-hmm. I I started to doubt its veracity, though, <laughs> as soon as they started talking about uh, children on spikes. Quite familiar, isn't it? As All a motif. the time. Even right up until the First World War, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Japanese. In the oh, yeah. Uh, and then there was another one... Uh, Always with the, always with the priests women. and the mm, pregnant women, yeah. yeah. Similarly, uh, Richard of Hexham. Mm. It is even reported that in one place they slew many little children gathered together, and draining their blood, collected it in a stream which they had previously dammed up, and thus drank that bloody water. Uh-oh, Nay, now for the most part, blood. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> I don't believe it. But. It does seem likely that it was a pretty nasty campaign. Um, One of David's uh, friends, and someone who later wrote an incredibly uh, devoted lamentation on his death, Aylred of Revo, loves David, absolutely loves David, but he says on this episode, I own it. Our David also sinned. Now, though these things were done against his will, nay, though he forbade them, still, as it was in his power not to have brought them, not to have brought them again when he had once put them to the test. We own with tears that he also sinned. What on? Uh, how do you unpick that? He's basically saying, look, it was all these really nasty men in his army, and it wasn't his fault, but technically he didn't have to bring them, and technically he didn't have to bring them again after they'd been bad the first time. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so he's saying, he's sort of admitting that it was pretty, Dynasty. Now, apparently David did issue a proclamation that church land and priests and whatnot should be looked after and protected, but clearly he wasn't able to. Mm. But there's one thing that you're interested in, and that is what David gets up to in the bedroom. Certainly is. And here is what Aylred has to say about that. Good, good. Moreover, there is truly no need to praise the chastity that was in him. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant phrases. I bit my cheek then. <laughs> For, I can say, Ali's hand is hovering <laughs> over that bell. For, after he had once entered into wedlock, he was true to his wife's bed. Oh, what? So that not only did he never know another, But he never even looked at another unbecomingly, for his life was so public, his doing so open and above board, that he was never even singed by ever so light a suspicion on this score. After the death of his wife, whom he outlived twenty-three years, he never, even in sleep, suffered the wrong of fleshly taint. Horse-radish sauce. I don't (laughs) believe that for a moment. Not a moment. It started off so well. I may have misled you in my emphasis. Oh, dear, oh dear. Right, well... well Indeed, there are um, no records of any yeah. illegitimate children or anything like that. So whether or not uh, Aylred can really say with confidence what uh, David's dreams consisted of, uh, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of naughty bedromantics. That's a real shame. I know, I know. Bum. But... 
we do have uh, a bit of atrocities in the north we've got some we've got some war crimes got some pretty nasty war crimes yeah but i mean which uh, war of conquest at this time wouldn't really yeah um they did sound particularly bad, and the fact that that one guy who was uh, a big fan, yeah, a big the fan, the one that tells us about Puri's dreams were, yeah, oh, same chap, same chap, yeah. Um, even he says, "All right, well, it was a bit bad." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I'll take it that it was above even the mm. the average, the standard game of play yeah. for the, the time. <laughs> three, I think three. Yeah, I was thinking three as well. It's not. It's not really full-on scandal. There's not an awful lot to go on, but he deserves more than a piffling uh, yeah. amount for yeah. some pretty nasty war crimes. So that is a six for scandal. He's doing rather well. Subjectivity. Well, here we've got quite a bit to yeah. go on if we ignore that nasty war crime episode. <laughs> um, he gets a lot of praise from the English, mm. as I say, other than this particular thing. Uh, they note that while England is beset by civil war... So, as I said, this became known as the Anarchy. It's where one of the chroniclers said uh, that Christ and his saints slept during these years. Good book, that. Mm. Mm. Uh, Scotland, and indeed northern England after 1138, because it's under David's control, is pretty much a haven. Yeah. Um, And for Scotland generally, after the 11 to 24 to 34 succession wars, no rebellion, no invasion from anywhere else. It's all absolutely fine and That's steady and stable and peaceful. Surely the longest period of peace in Scotland since we started this series. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and I mentioned it briefly before, the Davidian Revolution. Oh, yeah. So it's a huge number of reforms in church and state that David introduces. Major improvements to their governance, the economy, the health and unity of the church, and indeed Scotland's standing in Europe as a result of all of these things. And um, it really puts Scotland on the map, and David is a hugely respected figure who is seen as doing all of this stuff. So, your favourite, church reform. Oh. Oh, this one that Ali's face just rose for a moment before the words. Church reform. Um, He's also a great uh, patron of monasteries, founds a large number of monastic houses, most notably at Kelso, Melrose, uh, Jedburgh, and uh, Holyrood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, And he also revives the bishopric of Glasgow and inaugurates a new cathedral there. Mm. He's also credited with creating a new parish system. Right. um, An (laughs) organised network spread across the country. He actually enacts a law for compulsory tithes. So if you're near a certain parish, you've got to pay... That sounds pretty awful, though. Well, but I suppose the benefit is kind of creating these communities based on churches. So it's starting to get this organisation across Scotland, a bit more uniformity. Now, James I of Scotland Mm. uh, criticised David for his generosity to the church, describing him as a sorry saint for the crown, because he's (laughs) spending so much money on the church. Yeah. But it does go beyond a spiritual benefit. Um, It helps, firstly, politically spread the influence of the crown, because right. the church is very much obviously supporting him. So if he's getting new churches in places like Murray and all these remote areas, yeah. it's spreading his influence by proxy, mm. in effect. Um, the Augustinians play a very major role in providing literate men mm. who are able to do all the new administration that David right. needs in his kingdom. And the Cistercians are famed for their agricultural development. So you oh, get okay. a lot better agriculture, and they also are quite into uh, trading all of this stuff. Right. So they're like uh, early merchants. It's exactly. Like so actually, town going. all of these new monasteries, they do actually bring quite a lot of political mm. and economic benefit as well as just okay. the prayers. But he also does a lot reforming governance and the state. 
Um, and partly this is the influence of Henry I again. He was the protégé. He did get that valuable education in the government. Mm. So it's quite useful time that he spent in England. We have feudalism. Yeah. So this is where we've got enfiefment of foreign knights. So the Normans that come over. So he's got effectively crown agents. And he can get men from that land. And fight. he can get men from that land. So as a result, we've got uh, major families of medieval Scotland that come. So like the Bruce family. Oh, right. The Balliol family. Ah. The Stuarts. Okay. This is where the Oak David brings all of them. Yeah. All of them to come. Oh, right. From Norman court it's, in yeah, London. This is Norman, mates. Right. Not at all Scottish then? No. Rex, fact. <laughs> he's building some castles. He's capturing enough. He's capturing castles. Mm. He's getting a cavalry going. Yeah, that was jolly good. He introduced uh, sheriffdoms. So sheriffs. This is basically. really like Alfred. Mm. And Henry, actually, a little bit. Henry II. Mm. Also. Well, oh, Henry yeah, his, first, re- his reforms, yeah. Mm. So we've got um, much more effective government and rule of law and order across mm. Scotland because they're David's men. Yeah. Doing David's policies. He also introduces the office of Justicia, which is kind of the head of administration and justice. And then the economy takes a major boost. As we said earlier, he gets control of uh, mints, i.e. Yeah. ability to make coins. So this is the first Scottish coinage, which is quite an incredible yeah. thing, rather a long time after the English. Yeah, I'll post a wee picture of a first Scottish coin so mm. you can get hold of one. Um Unlike in England at this time, during the anarchy, when you've got all the different nobles are basically doing their own coins and the quality really, really drops, in Scotland, who just started doing it, it's much more uniform and it's actually a very high quality. Mm. So Scotland, economically, really has something of a yeah. bit of a boom in this period. Rather than the old system of almost sort of bartering just goods, we've now actually got money yeah, flowing and an service. economy being built. And he's b- built the um, foundations for that money to flow. And he's also building burrs, which uh, very much is an Alfred it word. Is, it is. Yeah. He creates for, uh, Scotland's first trading burrs, which effectively market towns. So the king gives permission for a town to trade, yeah. and then he takes the cut of the revenue. Yeah. So he's got a bit of control over it. He gets some money from it, but also you've got these structured cultural trading centres. It's so mafia, though, isn't it? (laughs) It's like protection racket. So about 12 or 16 burrs he founds in this period, and really major places like Berwick, Perth, Aberdeen, all in this period that he's setting up. It transforms Scotland. It becomes a much more sort of European trading nation, which brings economic benefits. Mm. It brings the goods and services. It brings cultural stuff, of course, um, and much more revenue for the crown. It's really, really good. On the downside for David, Mm. a couple of uh, areas of criticism. A lot of historians, particularly sort of nationalist historians that came along later, criticised him for the Normanisation of Scotland, criticised him as being anti-Celtic, in effect. Um, And you can kind of see why. He's got this Norman upbringing. He's effectively trained as a Norman knight. His career is made for him by Henry I, which included taking some of his brother's lands. He even names his son after Henry I. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. William of Malmesbury said that David had rubbed off all tarnish of Scottish barbarity through being polished by intercourse and friendship with us. (laughs) Oh, dear. I'm sure we'd all appreciate being polished by intercourse. (laughs) They really didn't uh, have a sense of double... (laughs) They weren't French enough to understand the meaning of double entendre. You know what you do? You get a tape recorder. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As she said, he didn't really want to go through that coronation ceremony at Schoon because he thought it was all so barbaric and pagan. 
the very first charter he does as king is to give land to Robert de Bruce um, in a charter witnessed entirely by Norman lords. Uh, so strange that he's no now the, to the Scots. So Scottish, that <laughs> yes. name. Um, however, arguably, this has been over-exaggerated, and there's actually quite a lot of balance that goes on. A lot of the Scottish, uh, a lot of the church figures still have Scottish names. We have Cormacs, Nechtan, Macbeth. Mm. Various of Scottish earldoms are still native, like uh, in Fife and Dunbar. Michael Lynch, historian, has argued that actually the longer the reign goes on, the more Celtic he becomes. Right. So he develops yeah. those links much better. He's spreading his influence much better. And, you know, what's he doing? He's invading the north of England. England, can't yeah. More Scottish than that. Yeah. And you did, you did seem to suggest that once Malcolm was got rid of, the Scots accepted him. Yeah. Which we probably... We any more rebellions. Yeah, and it probably works both ways and they accepted him and he then in turn probably thought oh they're not mm. such a bad it's bunch. a merger mm. so it's not like England in 1066 where you just completely get rid of the old yeah. order and stamp something new and it's a bit more nuanced a bit more and he is Scottish mm. like he was taken away as a child because of his murderous uncle yeah but you know that's not really his fault yeah Arguably, the Davidean revolution is exaggerated a little bit. So there's quite a lot of stuff that he's kind of building upon rather than creating a new. Mm. So like the parish system, there were there was a piecemeal thing there already. There were parishes there, but he's just built on that and creates mm. something a bit more coherent and unified. Um, some of the monasteries, they're actually are ones that are already there, and he's just sort of, again, he's building on new things. He's mm. reviving the Archbishopric of Glasgow rather than creating it from nothing. Um, and he technically doesn't resolve that dispute with York. So in 1151, he was still trying. Um, he requested a pallium, so it's kind of the symbol of office, yeah. for a bishop for St Andrews and also one for Orkney. And a papal legate came along, but obviously didn't take his cause up. So St Andrews didn't get one, and instead Trondheim in Norway was made an archbishopric, and it had jurisdiction over Orkney. Oh, right. Oh, bit of a snub. And also the criticism for him being too Norman hmm. and the Davidian revolution it was good and necessary though to, to organise the army and to getting a cavalry to, to having all that legal reform hmm. it, it might have been a bitter pill but one that perhaps was necessary yeah I, was, I think it's as it's, it feels like the way you hmm. described it it's to be the equivalent of an, an Alfred hmm that major step change which in turn allowed Alfred to take the fight to the Danes and here allowed them to actually take the fight literally as far south as York yeah. and consider taking the Archbishop of, Ken of York and whilst he's doing all of this he's also got a completely stable Scotland yeah. where he's introducing all these amazing reforms, getting coinage and economy yeah. new towns I can't think, I'm trying to think of because it's clearly in my head such a big score mm. I'm trying to think of points where i can instead of building it previously we've been trying to find <laughs> points find anything to say i'm trying to chip one away the only thing i was wondering in terms of um if we're going to float that boat the maximum score mm. i was wondering whether and this is how far we take it or whether we can give a maximum score of subjectivity given the war criminess that we had <laughs> Oh. And that seems a bit of a blot on the copybook. Now, technically, it's not Scottish people that he's. But if we give up. him, if we give him the score for, I suppose we've got to share that between badliness and subjectivity, in that mm. they do become his subjects. Yeah, they were nice to him afterwards. Yeah, I think you're right there. I reckon I could go with eight. Mm. 
I might still go for a nine, I think. I think it is, I mean, for for this period, for the 12th century, and particularly when you think of all the chaos yeah. of everything we've had in Scotland mm. before this time, to do all of this, and we've had nothing like this at all. It's uh, it's very impressive. Yeah, I'm forgetting all of the all the admin. When I, I just yeah. <laughs> had the um, exaggerated, probably, claims yeah. of drinking blood. I mean, I, I, to people who listen, we'd never ever discuss scores beforehand <laughs> and i know we're gonna be uh, mirroring each other here but i feel like a nine yeah i'll yeah. go with nine so that is a whopping 18 for subjectivity so again that's the top score yeah longevity so he reigns it's gonna be massive isn't it from the 24th of april 1124 mm. to the 24th of may huh? 1153 so that's 29 years and one month that's big. Which now we've um, we've seen quite a few because we s- floated the idea of changing how we do the longevity mm. scores. We've had quite a few suggestions. We haven't had time to sit down and no. work them out. So this score may actually go up if we adopt a new system because mm. at the moment it's ten point zero eight on the patiometer. On the patiometer, which seems quite low for you know nearly thir- nearly thirty years in uh, the twelfth century. In the, yeah, exactly. Well, if he's going to drop points somewhere and still come up third, that's pretty good. Dynasty. Well, I'm afraid this is where he drops the points because Henry dying means that despite having had four children by his wife, Henry was the only one that survived to adulthood and he dies the year before David. Oh, no. Which means that David gets a zero for dynasty. Two things. Mm. That is why you must always maintain (laughs) a very high juicy scandal score in all areas. I don't know which one I'm talking about. Um, and he's, he is unlucky, and he does have three grandsons, so it's not a complete yeah. disaster. It's not like Henry I in England in this scenario. Yeah. Anyway, unfortunately for David, he doesn't pick up any more points at the end, so his total score is 50.08. Is that the highest? It's No, no it's not the highest, oh. I'm afraid, because uh, of that dynasty, really. So it's the second highest score. No, it's the third highest score. So we'd got Kenneth II got 50.32. Malcolm III got 65.87 because he scored in all. So the dynasty one has stopped him getting top marks, really. That, we gave the Rex Factor to those other two, didn't we? Yes. Rex Factor! Well. I'm again thinking, how, how would he not get it? Yeah, I mean... You know, we've got securing Scotland more than his predecessors yeah. have done. Scotland is bigger in the mainland of what Scotland is today. It's more like that. Yeah. We've got huge territorial gains in England. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've got that Davidian revolution. It's all good. The only thing against him, we've got his early career being all thanks to Henry I. Yeah. Failing to secure Durham and York. And the fact that the Scotto-Northumbrian realm doesn't you know survive him for very long failing to secure north uh, um durham and york mm. maybe he was you know to get the moon named for the stars <laughs> he was had this as an overall goal and he'd accept everything whatever came his way mm. um the fact that we're even talking about that as a disappointing factor <laughs> is yeah is brilliant and uh he couldn't help where his early advantage came from but what he could help was to make sure that he used it Exactly. And he did. Yeah. I think it's good. I think I... Unless all of a sudden we find out that actually he was somehow mechanical puppet <laughs> controlled by the church or something, um, or it was all a figment of John and Fordham's imagination, it's a massive <laughs> yes from me. 
and uh, it's got to be yes from me as well that is a that's a nailed on rex factor david the first it's got the rex factor boom boom pow hey well done david yeah that's well, one in a while but he, comfortable he really lives up to that card he does i mean I've, I've got to say you know i think going into this series i think the name that most people would be familiar with in terms of like great king would be robert the bruce yeah I think he's, it's when we come to the playoffs at the end of the season, David maybe could uh, this, um, give him a run for his money. This is why this series is good, isn't it? To get people like this mm. um, in the public eye. I'm going to get a photo of him. So that is it for David the First. He does have the Rex Factor. And he joins uh, Kenneth McAlpin, Constantine the Second, Kenneth the Second, Malcolm the Second, and Malcolm the Third on the Rex Factor Mountain. Now, um, if you've enjoyed this, if you agree or disagree with us or want to uh, make comment, then please do get in touch with us. You can message us on Twitter at RexFactorPod, like us on Facebook and join in the discussions there, email us um, RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com and also go into WordPress and read the blogs there and you complete uh, polls where you can say whether or not you think any one of the Scots or indeed of the English series did or didn't deserve the Rex Factor. If you'd like to support the podcast, which would be very, very lovely of you, you could leave a review on iTunes. Oh, they're very helpful. And subscribe. Um, you can also make a donation to the podcast, which is really very, very lovely of you when you do. You can make a one-off donation on PayPal. And we thank very much this month Jack Nichols, Paul Stukenholtz, Sarah Schulman, and Dee White, who have all made donations. Thank you very much. Or you can do crowdfunding and you can click the Be My Patron link and join our Privy Council and make a uh, monthly donation to the podcast. All hell, all hell, the Privy Council. So you get uh, one dollar, oh, so for one dollar a month you get a mention on the podcast. They don't get a dollar, do they? No, so that's a bad, <laughs> bad system we've set up there. If you want some money, let me know. Um, I'll fish around the back of the sofa. Two dollars a month you get a comment read out on the podcast. Five dollars a month you get a mug when we've got uh, uh-huh. our new designs uh, available there. Ten dollars a blog of your choice or $15 a month a podcast special on the subject of your choosing and we've recently released a new special episode on uh, legendary medieval knight William the Marshal Marshal so uh, for just a mere $2 you can get a good sort of over yeah. two hours worth of us talking about this yeah. really awesome awesome knight from the Plantagenet yeah. era very, very close actually to where we are now is it? In oh it's coming up there. yeah exactly. mm. Yeah. and um, for anyone that struggled with the Waterloo episode Podbean have introduced a lovely new system for payment. It's all much easier. There's no more waiting around for emails now. You pay your money, you get access. You to pay the your money, you get your podcast, <laughs> and it's all there straight away. Same. We've now, we've done the same for the Waterloo now. So Waterloo, William Marshall, much easier to get hold of. I've done it. I've now you can bought, follow my lead. I've uh, <laughs> I've paid Rex at the podcast two dollars. <laughs> Is it two dollars? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in order to test the system, <laughs> and it really was click go exactly lovely and easy um and yeah and if you're a member of the privy council of course you get free access to uh, a link to this thing so we've got quite a number of new privy councillors. so thank you to uh, the following usernames well good morning uh, anastasia uh Wijaya, brian brian dylan Gillian Dumphy, C.L. Cooper and Tim. Happy birthday, Tim. Happy birthday. Catherine Stefanis, uh, Jeanette Binfield, Henry Durant, MTNS for Meg, <laughs> Sheena77 and Daniel Laman. I recognise a lot of those names from Facebook. Mm. So thanks so much for becoming patrons. But 
also for getting in touch on facebook because it's really nice to hear even if you're not a patron obviously we just want to hear from you and and say howdy doody exactly i'll get back to you but until then it's goodbye from me cheerio from me